This is FBI Supervisory Special Agent David Rossi. You called me impotent. Did I? I am not impotent. Why are you whispering? You lied. You lied. Is someone around you? Are you at work? You have to tell the news the truth. I'll get you on the news and you can correct me yourself. You, you, you corrected. By the way, I was um, looking at the police security tapes for the day Michelle Colucci went missing. What? You watched her long enough to know she didn't have visitors. She was a loner. Yet you knew that Detective Yarborough was coming over. You must have been right here in this station when he told her. Now your face is going to be on one of those tapes. And when I find it, I'm going to paper this city with it. Just like you did with those women. Everyone will see it. They won't be able to ignore you now. But you won't inspire fear. You'll inspire hatred and ridicule. Because the only power someone like you has is a mask. And once that mask is removed, you'll be as insignificant as you've always been. A loser! Hello and welcome to Killer Casting. I'm Lisa Zambetti. I am a casting director in Los Angeles, California, probably best known for my work on CBS's long-running show, Criminal Minds. So if you know that show that I cast victims and villains and everything in between, but appropriate for today's podcast, I also cast cops, conmen, fathers, and sons. And I have a very special guest today, but before I bring him in, let's say hello to my sexy beasts. Brian, Dean, how are you? Good morning. Good morning. Hello. Hello. <laughs> good morning. Good morning indeed from uh, down under. It's 0600, as Robert Williams said. Oh my God, it's 0600 <laughs> here in, uh, <laughs> in Melbourne, but very happy to be here. Hello, everybody. So before I introduce our mystery guest, Brian, Dean, how fucking excited are you to talk to this paisan? How excited? I'm going to try and, and temper my fanboy uh, as much as I can. I am a long-standing mammoth guy. I have a couple of really good friends. When we lived in Chicago, we would often quote back and forth, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. I might even do that a little bit this morning, as a matter of fact. But yeah, I'm super thrilled. But I'm tempering and yeah. just being as cool just- and chill as I possibly can be. So I don't want to embarrass the group, you understand, or my family for that matter. Okay. So I, I have a story which goes like this. And Brian and Lisa, I have not shared this with you, but this is a F-A-C-T fact. So I'm in the car and I'm on a group call with a couple of friends of mine on the phone. And somebody said something about blah, 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 bastard. And apologies to our guests for this, by the way. Off the top of my head, I just did this little impression. I said, but all bastards are liars. Shakespeare said this. (laughs) And then... Which, for those of you who don't know the scene, and shame on you, this is something that Joey Zaza says to uh, Michael Corleone in Godfather 3. And this is on the Friday. And on the Saturday morning, I get an email from Lisa saying, oh, by the way, we're going to be talking to this guy. And I'm like, get the fuck out of here. I just (laughs) did this line yesterday. The show is, that movie's 30 years old. And, And the next day, and I'm like, oh, this was meant to be. 
Yep. So without further ado, everybody, let's kiss the ring. Who is my guest today? No, Montaigne, no. Oh, back to that <laughs> I was, waiting, I was waiting for something else, and I don't even know what. Uh, great, great, great to be here. And thank you, Brian, and thank you, Dean, and thank you, Lisa, for the wonderful introduction. I think, like, and then I look at myself on camera, and I go, yeah, I, I, I earned this. I guess it's been a long time. Oh, my God. <laughs> 30 years of this. In the bucket. That wasn't even one of the first things I did. So, anyway. Now, Joe, um, the, the funny thing is, right, that you just mentioned your hair. And I was looking, reviewing, and I can picture every scene from Godfather 3 that you're in, Joey Zaza. Amazing. And I was going to make a joke that when Lisa told me that we're going to interview you, I've been doing my sort of best Joe, Mon- Joe Montaigne. Now, by the way, Montaigne, Montagna, can I get this right throughout? The, Italian, the proper Italian pronunciation really would be Montaigne. The E sound is an A sound, and the A sound is an A sound, so it's Montaigne. But I take anything that's close. Montaigne. Montaigne. Okay. Montaigne. So, Montaigne. I, so I've been trying to do my best Montaigne sort of thing here with the beard. Uh, but sadly, of course, I'm follically challenged, and so I am not going to be, I, I, I will not be able to replicate that gorgeous head of hair. I will not be uh, a Bella Fagura. Unfortunately, that on the top of my head, at least. Anyway. So Very for, good. For those of you who can't see, my friend Joe has let his hair go silvery fox, which was this a big issue on Criminal Minds when you decided to well, go? You know what it was when I first joined the cast, something like close to 15 years ago, my hair was that pretty dark as it normally would be. And the only request they made of me actually was, would I mind growing a goatee? Because I didn't have any facial hair at the time. And I thought, yeah, my, I, looks go in and out. And I figured I'll be doing the show for a year or two years tops anyway. <laughs> What's the difference? I said, sure, I'll grow a goatee. I did that. And then, as we all know, unfortunately for all of us, the show had uh, tremendous legs. And as each year went on, the show kept going, but so did the aging process of Joe Montaigne kept going. So it was one of those things was like, what they try to do is, and I get it, it's because of syndication, really, in the sense of, look, you're going to come a time, we're going to have all these episodes, trying to make everybody look similar, because that stuff's going to be shown out of order. And it was like, fine. So they were basically trying to maintain that look. But it got to a point where it was like, what are we doing here? You know? <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I give credit, I really give credit to the hair department. Because yeah. it wasn't my, I, I didn't care. I, I become an actor. I go with the flow. We put on a mask and do the stuff. But uh, I remember our hairstylist said, uh, Joe, you know what, got it underneath that, every time I have to go do the the Grecian formula, whatever they did to take the gray out. They said, we ought to let it just go. And I said, hey, it's fine with me. So, and then I remember I directed the episode where we have introduced it. And I figured I want to make an acknowledgement of it. At least this way, there's some logic to it. I talked to the writer and I added some lines to the script where I basically have the girl who's my former wife from 20 years prior. She says to me, oh, I like the gray. You know, did I give that to you? She says, I said, no, my agent convinced me I should go on natural, let it go. And then that's it. Never have to mention it yeah. again. Yeah, and yeah, on yeah. we go. Nice. And that's what I've done in life. I've gone on that natural. There's no going back. We're going to get into why I brought you on. But before we get to that, I wanted to mention that you did direct many episodes of Criminal Minds. Yeah, I think I did nine of them, actually. And with you, of course. Yeah. And this is the thing, Joe. When I was interviewing for my job at Criminal Minds, I never heard of Criminal Minds. You would be shocked, but I just, it wasn't on my radar. Hey, you and me both. (laughs) (laughs) When they offered me the job, I didn't know about it. I really didn't. So when I was in interviewing for it, the boss was, you know, telling me about it. I'm like, "Uh uh-huh. I don't know. 
who's Shamar? Who's a Googler? I don't know what any of this means. But when he said the two words, Joe Montaigne, I'm like, holy fuck. I'm a theater person. I was on Broadway. I, I acted on Broadway, off Broadway. That's my people. And when I heard your name, I was like, okay, I, I must, I have to do the show. But I have to tell you, Joe, I was so painfully shy at that time. I could barely talk to you when we saw each other at craft services or at lunchtime. But then you started directing and slowly I got the courage to like say, well, do you really want to go with this actress? Because you might want to, you might want to think. And I was, everybody around me was like, what are you doing? How are you? You can't challenge Joe. You can't, you can't. I'm like, I understand him. I understand. You do. No, you know? God bless you. Did. God bless you. And I would love you even if you weren't Italian. <laughs> but uh, honestly, God, you are, and I've said this over and over again, and you listen to it because I feel this way. You are at the top of the game in, in that business. You are tremendous as a casting person, and there was no nobody better that I've worked. <gasps> really, nobody better. Oh my gosh! So, uh, and so you were so important to me in the casting of those nine episodes. You steered me always in the right direction and made that job so much easier for me because casting is so important. It's at least fifty percent of the process as a director, if not more. Yeah. And so it's all about that. And so we connected. And I'm not just saying this just because you know, yeah, I don't have to. At my age, I don't have to no. you know, blow smoke up anybody's ass. No. So but bottom line, you are really at the very top of your game. Oh I'm very fortunate that happened. Thank you. And if you've ever seen Joe in the audition room with actors, there's no one more generous with actors because he fucking knows what they're going through having to come in front of us and audition. And he is just so kind. And they're so starstruck when they see you on the other side of the table. Sometimes they don't know that you're going to be the one directing. And it was, that was just a remarkable experience. So there's this little show on Netflix that you may have heard of called Queen's Gambit. And I've watched right. it and it, it's probably one of the most watched things they've ever had on Netflix. And I was watching it and it's great. It's its own thing. It's wonderful. But as I'm watching it, I'm like, you know what this show is reminding me of? Is the OG film about child prodigy chess players. And it made me miss this movie that I saw you in where I fell completely in love with you and with the film. And that was the movie Searching for Bobby Fischer. And Joe, can you just tell us about that movie? And tell us about Queen's Gambit and what's been happening since that show has exploded across the zeitgeist. Yeah, first of all, I'll have to preface it by saying I've yet to watch Queen's Gambit, but I will, because I've heard so much about it, but I certainly have been, been made aware of it. And in fact, one of the people who made me aware of it, those people who are familiar with the movie Searching for Bobby Fischer, the role that Ben Kingsley played in the film, and the character's name is Bruce Pandolfini, and there is a real Bruce Pandolfini. This was a movie based on, a, on real people. And so the real Bruce Pandolfini and I have maintained a very close relationship over the years. You have to put Ben Kingsley out of your mind because yeah. he's not the, the short British <laughs> guy, you know, <laughs> very tall, lumbering guy from Brooklyn. Ben was brilliant in the role, but it was a total different take on, you know, he created basically a, a fictional characterization of a real person. But the real Bruce Pandolfini, he always calls me on my birthday every year. And so when he called me, and this was just a few weeks ago, he brought that up. He said, oh my, I said, how you doing, Bruce? He goes, I, I got to tell you, my career has really taken a brief boost due to the success of the Queen's Gambit because of the whole popularity of chess, this, that, and the other. And I guess made people want to relive seeing the film Searching for Bobby Fischer and all. I'm, I'm happy to see that. And I'm happy to see the, that, that there's, there's this quality project involving that subject matter out there now. And certainly my experience on uh, searching for Bobby Fisher is something, you know, I'll put that in my, the top 10 career experiences in my life. 
So yeah, we're going to talk about three of your films today, Searching for Bobby Fischer, then Homicide, then House of Games, three very different movies. But Searching for Bobby Fischer, in a nutshell, do you want to tell people what that movie is about? Because it's really a family film. It's not as like Queen's Gambit, which is a totally yeah. different vibe. Yeah. yeah, and it's also, I think some people might have you know initially thought, oh, this is going to be a chess movie. I don't know if I want to see a movie about chess. Exactly. It's, really not, it's not that at all. The arena that it works in but it is it's, it's about a family and it's about uh, the, the the life of this young boy and what ultimately happens to him in that world and all i could say is i remember when i was first sent the script and i read the script and the first thing i thought after i read it was oh my god unless i'm kidding myself this is one of the best scripts i've ever read in my life and sometimes you start to doubt your own taste in that stuff i remember i said remember at first i talked to my agent i says let me ask you something what do you think of the script he goes oh i think it's brilliant I said, okay, all right, that's one confirmation. And then as it turned out, I was I had just finished the film Bugsy prior to that. And the movie was opening. And, and I was at a, an event for the film Bugsy. And Ben Kingsley is also in the film Bugsy. And he and I had become friends on making that film. And I remember we were at this event and we're sitting next to each other at this table. He brings up the fact, he says, oh, by the way, I've heard that you've been offered a role in the Searching for Bobby Fischer. They've offered one to me as well, of Bruce Pendolfini. I said, oh, Ben, what do you think? What do you think of the script? And he goes, oh, my God, it's one of the best things I've read in my life. I said, if Gandhi thinks it's the best movie I've ever read, I question my taste any further. But let's give some shout outs to the writer and director, Steve Zalian. Who Steve wrote- Zalian. Well, I'll tell you this. Steve Zalian, this was, I didn't know who Steve Zalian really was at the time, but we go in, I, he had some background, and but this was going to be his first time direct, but he was directing his script. So I remember near the end, somewhere near the end of the filming, I would see him, he'd run off away from the camera and he'd scribble in a corner, he'd sit in a corner and we're scribbling. And I go, Steve, what are you doing? He goes, oh, I'm behind on a script I'm writing for Spielberg. And he says, I'm behind on, on the writing and I'm trying to catch up. I go, oh, what's the name of it? And he goes, Schindler's List. And I'm thinking, so they got to remember, this is whatever, 1993. I don't know, Schindler's mm-hmm. List from nothing. And so I'm thinking, I'm, what goes to my head is the movie Five Easy Pieces, which also had an esoteric kind of a name. And I thought, Schindler's List. So I said, well, what's it about? Is it about some guy goes to the grocery store and his wife tells him to pick up these five items and then it turns into this whole thing. I mean, I really said that. And he said, no, it's not that. (laughs) And actually, and that's also the reason why Ben Kingsley wound up being in the movie Schindler's List because Spielberg and Steve were working so, State Salian was working so closely together on writing of Schindler's List at the time that Spielberg picked up on what Ben was doing in our movie. And so ultimately offered him the role in Schindler's List while we were still shooting uh, Bobby Fischer. What a writer. What a oh, writer. my God. Yeah. If you guys, if our listeners can look him up, he wrote Mission Impossible. He wrote Gangs in New York, Moneyball, so many things. It's amazing, but it's special. And we're going to get into this with when we talk about Mamet. This is the first time he's directing something he wrote. Right. And that's always a very special thing for a writer to make that turn, wouldn't you say? Right. I think where he was lucky or blessed, it's not luck, but things turned out. The producer of that film was Scott Rudin. Scott Rudin has, has somewhat of a reputation in Hollywood. Oh, uh, yeah. Somewhat. <laughs> somewhat. You know, bigger than... I literally saw him once take a cell phone where he's talking to an assistant and threw, threw it through the windshield of a car. I think I was that uh, assistant. Yeah, yeah. No. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Good thing about Scott, that, that same passion that makes him crazy is also makes him passionate as a producer. And I realized that when we did the first read-through of the script, we all got together as we did on Criminal Minds and at the round table or the, the reading of the script. He started crying at the end of it. 
And I looked up and I thought, oh, Jesus Christ, the producer's crying. And it's not because we're over budget. It's because, <laughs> it's because, of the, it's because he liked the script so much. And because it was Steve's first time directing, he needed a little comfort zone, a little not being pressured. And also we're working with a young boy who was eight years old, who was not an actor, but was one mm. of the hundred best chess players in New York at the time. Oh, is that how they found him? Yeah. Oh, yeah. okay. And in a way, I think that probably helped me out because you know, his name was Max Pomerant, lovely young boy, eight years old, brilliant chess player. But also, luckily, he was also involved in the theater department at, at his, I think he was in grammar, he had to be in grammar school. But luckily, he was, I it looked like I could be his father. Let's face it, if he'd have been a blonde-haired, blue-eyed kid, you know, yeah. the, the, the real uh, Josh Waitzkin, they would have been looking another way to, for somebody to play the father. Right. So I think I fell into at least the category of a guy that could be this, because they had to have him. That kid was like he invaluable. was gold. Oh, yeah. He oh, was yeah. gold, but yet not being an actor, he needed a little more time, a little more. Uh, so, in other words, sometimes we would do eight to ten takes on something as opposed to one or two because of that, and it's understandable. But because of that, we sometimes we wound up shooting like over a million feet of film. Wow, which is a lot in the which movie is, world. Yeah, yeah. But Scott would do things like hide film in trailer trucks, you know, <laughs> whatever it was Warner Brothers or Paramount for your know, producers. Mm-hmm. He would basically. You know, not let them know just how much footage we were shooting because he wanted Steve to have that comfort of don't worry about it, make your movie. We had a cinematographer was I'm spacing on his name right now, but he was one of the most brilliant cinematographers of all time. Yeah, Conrad Hall. So all of yeah. these, Conrad mm-hmm. Hall, Connie Hall. Mm-hmm. So all of this putting together, what this cast was so brilliant. You had people playing one line parts like William H. Macy and people doing just like little bits. And this was an early Joan Allen movie. Joan Allen played recall. my wife, right? Yeah. Josh Mostel was in the movie with right. uh, yeah. uh, uh, Tony Shaloub. I don't even think he had a line because he just played a, a chess game with Josh yeah. for Juju Bees or something. And he might have said one word. The kind of care even in the casting they took on that film. So it was a perfect storm of the best possible people and the script and director and cinematographer all together. It was amazing. Dan Hadea, of course. Of, uh, Dan Hadea, brilliant. Wonderful. Oh, what a guy. Every time he pops up, you can't take your eyes off him. He's just amazing. Exactly. My show is called Killer Casting. And of course, the casting of this was amazing, done by the great A.V. Kaufman. And it's based on a true story, which can be interesting. Joe, do you want to tell us what the story really is? What's it based on the real Fred Waitzkin? And, and uh, yeah, son? Fred Waitzkin, the father, the character I played, he wrote a book searching for Bobby Fisher. Pretty much all shown in the movie. It's funny, there's a scene missing in the movie that we shot but never used because there's a scene where, and Shelley Winters played the part. I is the father. Just so immersed in this whole thing and yet didn't quite know what to do here. He had this kid who was a prodigy. And anybody who saw the movie saw the scene that I had with the teacher where I'm yelling at her, who was Laura Linney. Laura Linney, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah playing just like a, one little scene in it. So they see where my head is at and I'm flipping out as a, as a parent and not knowing what to do. Mr. Waitzkin? Oh, hi, how you doing? Mr. Waitzkin, I'm I'm sure he's very good at this chess thing, but that isn't really the issue. Chess when thing. I'm, I'm sorry. Chess thing. I'm sure he's very good at it, but it worries me. If I could make an analogy, chess thing. if it was like, say, oh, I don't know, um, cards, <laughs> pinochle. Pinochle. For instance. Pinochle. I'm sorry, but your analogy is a very bad one. If you want to make a comparison to something, compare it to something that makes sense. Compare it to math or music or art, because otherwise it belittles him and it and me. No, I don't mean to belittle you at all. Oh, but you are. You are. 
Uh, even in the way you're looking at me. Mr. Waze, can I think perhaps... You want to know how good he is? I'll, I'll tell you how good he is. He is better at this than I have ever been at anything in my life. He is better at this than you'll ever be at anything. Chess is what it's called. Not chess thing. Chess. We shot a scene where I go looking for Bobby Fischer. And so I, I actually find out that he's living with some woman outside Pasadena, and that, that you can go find him there. And that we actually shot a scene where I go to this rundown and I talk to Shelly Winters and she tells me, gives me the information where to find him. Then I go to this rundown motel or something and I'm walking down the corridor and you hear dogs barking and kids yelling and people fighting with each other. And I get to a doorway that's supposedly his room. The door is cracked open a little bit and I push the door a little bit and I look in and I see a chessboard with chess pieces on it. He's not there. He's probably in the bathroom or something. But with all this going on, you make you get the realization that I come to the realization, what the fuck am I doing? Yeah. I'm coming to a person like this to get advice of how to raise my boy. And so it cuts to me going back to the house, making that realization in another way. But I come back to the house, basically have all his trophies and dump them in his room and say, these are yours. And that's when I make that kind of thing of I'm not going to let you do this. I'll take him away from you before I let you. Because right. you know, that scene where I got him in the rain. And so anyway. Oh my uh, God, heartbreaking it's a tough, scene. It's a yeah. Tough, yeah. tough scene. But to nut- nutshell the story, here's you're this guy. You're it's set in New York, and it's such a love letter to New York. I just loved locations, even the apartment that this family lives in. It looks like a real apartment. It's messy. Right. You can oh, see yeah. where everybody just left the basketball there and the toys there. Right. And it's about this sports writer dad, which you must have loved. You must have loved. Yeah, he's, sure. a, he's a he's a baseball. And he's got right. this loving wife and kids and his little boy who's just a kid. He's just 100% right. a kid. But he somehow takes a shine to chess and he is just a savant. He pretends to lose to you and your wife is, yeah, he you win. You know, because right. he's... Exactly. He, yeah, I'm, I, yeah, he's in the bathtub playing with his little rubber duckies, <laughs> and I'm at the board, and he's yelling down to me what move to make, and I'm like, looking up, are you kidding? And of course, he, I realize he, he beats me, and I'm like, that's when I make that realization, oh my God, something's going on here. Fishburne, we bring him to him, which is another wonderful actor, obviously, a brilliant actor playing that, that part. And there is a real, in Washington Square Park, there really are these guys who play oh, yeah. speed chess, and they're every shape ethnicity, every every kind of person playing the speed chess, and you let your son go there to watch the speed chess, and he strikes right. up a... And I'm going to give you one other little anecdote that people who love this movie or watch this movie, they may find very interesting. In one of those scenes, the scene when we bring him back, Joan brings him, or maybe I do, I do bring him back to the park, to basically to turn him back over to Lawrence Fishburne's character and say, let, yes, we want him to play with you again. Mm-hmm. We realize this is where he had the joy. So there's a, you see him playing the game with Lawrence, what people don't know is at the next table, right next to him, it's on camera, you can see it, is an elderly black gentleman playing, say, about 21, 22-year-old young man, white man. It's the real Josh Waitskin playing a game of chess with the real character that Lawrence Fishburne's oh character. My oh, God. Wow. Wow. oh, my and God. And so they're both in the same frame. You see that, but you would never think it's connection because... One is a little boy and the other guy's an adult. Yes. The other guy is his old man because the whole thing is that we made the movie. So 
something like 15 years later after, so he has all grown up. So that was kind of a cool little thing that not everybody, nobody really knows unless they hear it from you know, one of us. Yeah, absolutely. I know, I knew that there were real chess players in that scene yeah. uh, and that's wonderful. Oh, yeah. And even in the scene where you take him to the chess club, the, the venerated Austin Pendleton. chess. Oscar Pendleton. Pendleton. Yeah. Oh my God. Another great actor just doing a little bit. And what I love about the the movie is that it's about a father and it's not about chess. It's about a father and a son and how the father is because all he knows is winning or losing. It's like you, right. if you're good at something, you just become the best and you kill your opponent. And so he takes his son to be taught by Ben Kingsley's character. But you got to tell me, why did Kingsley choose? Now, I love Sir Ben. He's amazing. But he turns this guy who's supposed to be Italian. Yeah. He should be Italian, right? What's his last name? Pandolfini. Yeah, Pandolfini. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. he turns him into an Irish, yeah. like yeah. such a formal stick up his well, kind of a... Yeah. I, I think it was just a choice Ben made and being the great character actor that he is. I think once they, maybe when they met the real Bruce Pandolfini and realized you couldn't find physically a more opposite kind mm-hmm. of two guys, really. Because mm-hmm. like I said, Bruce is like a big guy. They were totally different in terms of that. And so I think it was Ben's idea of, look, rather than even try yeah. to get in that ballpark, I'm just going to invent a whole other little spin on it. And that's okay. To the public at large, we're all just basically symbolic of the real people anyway. And so that was all. I think that was the reason he made that choice. And, and Steve, I'm sure, was to say, look, you're Ben Kingsley. I'm not going to tell you, you know, <laughs> right, right, how, right. how to design your character. Hey, Joe, let me ask you just real quick. Um, from page to screen, how closely does it stick to, does the, the final product stick to the script that you read? Is it still, because you talked about the scene where you, that got cut, where you go to Bobby Fisher's place. How much of the final product was in the script that you read? That you I, I would say uh, it was pretty much all there. Again, that's, that's also the case of having the guy who wrote it also direct. So he has total control over where it's going and how it's going. And, and when you want to fix something, you've got that person right there to do it. <laughs> There might have been some little alterations made, but that, that was more an edit than it was a, a change of anything. Because literally, they just popped that little scene out, and and, and it still worked without it. Because you don't, if you, if you don't know it was supposed to be there, you don't need it there. But it was pretty close to, to being, as I recall, there was no major kinds of changes. And believe me, and then I know we're going to go in that direction in a minute, talking about David Mamet. When you work for a guy like Mamet, where there's zero amount of that kind of stuff going on, I'm not surprised to see that with Alien. It was somewhat in that same kind of way. Yeah. I do want to talk about the little boy who played this role because Brian is a casting director too. And he and I have cast mm-hmm. lots of kids. And Criminal One of Mines, I cast many children. And Joe, I got to tell you, rewatching this movie, watching this kid, I don't care if he was an amateur or what, this kid is so fucking watchable. The way oh, yeah. And so expressive. So expressive with the the way he will just hold his body and and his body listens to the scene and the way he looks and the way he checks with you. It's incredible. It's a study. It was incredible. Because a lot of kids that Brian and I cast, they're ruined. By the time they're eight years old, they've been doing, I love Disney. Thank you, Disney. I'd love to work for you again. But they're in the Disney mode. uh, No, I get it. You're right. I get it. That was just one of those lucks of the draw in a way. Just like this kid had it. And I remember I got a call a few years later from, I'm trying to think if it was Barry Levinson or some one of the, one of the top line directors who wanted to cast him, Max, that actor in something and just wanted my take on it. And I basically told him, I said, look, you, I know you're basing it on what you saw him doing in Bobby Fischer. The kid is brilliant. He's got that natural thing. But I said, you got to be ready for like, when you say cut, you better have somebody chase the kid because he doesn't like the process 
and he doesn't necessarily like the industry. And that's why he never ultimately went on to anything after a couple of years. And it's okay. Like we shot it a lot of it was over the summertime. So what he really looked forward to was being able to play. We got him. They got, his dad got him involved in his in this little uh, t-ball thing. Oh, we nice. shot some of it up in Toronto. So it was all about that, and it was all about trying to find him between takes because he'd run off and go do something because he could care less about what was going on in front of the camera. He might fall asleep or something. You know? yeah. And it was okay because he's eight years old. He wasn't one of those, like and I'm sure you've run into millions of times, those kid actors who are just like always on and just he could care less. So I told whoever it was, I said, be prepared for that. But I says, if you're ready for that, I says, and, and you have the patience. Yeah, he's a natural, he's brilliant. And I remember the film was made and I remember, and I can't remember what the film was, but they got back to me and said, thanks so much. And you're absolutely right <laughs> you know it took us like an extra four days maybe but we got what we needed and, he, and i wasn't he, surprised he, to hear that he didn't go on to you know, yeah because yeah. he really didn't that wasn't his thing God bless. Right. He's, he's he's amazingly self-assured in the film there's one point where he's playing a game I, I i can't remember which game he was playing with somebody and he moves the piece and then he says he just looks at his opponent and says your move and from the edit that the game's over but but it, it, all it was missing was your move punk he doesn't say the uh, word punk but he's got that attitude just wow look at yeah him. he knew when to get into the killer thing that even at that little exactly. bit exactly trick to or do. treat yeah yeah, yeah trick was- or treat right but it was sweet that's <laughs> the last yeah. line of the film when he goes oh, I, I love mean, it. it just breaks your heart it does and i love that the director and the writer allowed that sort of empathy from those children instead of the killer instinct that you know you and bill right. macy bill macy and, and david Tabar oh, yeah. as those very neurotic fathers but tell me about that scene in the rain where the kid starts to lose his confidence because he's worried about pleasing you and he loses and you're just beside yourself disappointed with him and, and he's in the rain and he's looking at his dad and you're like why did this happen why did this happen and the kid is like why are you standing so far away from me oh i can't even like as soon as you brought started to bring that up and i started to think of that line of hey i'm an italian i get it i, I start choking up I know. you know just <laughs> just thinking about him saying why are you standing so far from me? That's one of those moments. Now you can imagine hey, we had rain machines going. I'm being totally soaked. He's being totally soaked. Yeah. And knowing that I'm looking at this kid and having to say those lines. And at that time, I had my two daughters were just, when you them both, they're in their 30s now, but they were, my Gia was only about, say, maybe two and a half at the time. Mm-hmm. And, and Mia was like five. <laughs> so I was a father of little young daughters. And to see that little boy, soaking wet looking up at me saying why are you staying so far from me that was called needing zero acting talent to be able to to just grab him and hold him yeah it's just one of those those scenes that i'll always remember and be grateful i've had the opportunity to do it because it was where life imitates art imitates life the last line i want to read to you i'm sorry i could gush about this movie like all day long but you have this wonderful little monologue as you say to laura lenny who's josh's teacher and she's simpering being I don't think he should be doing chess, blah, blah, blah. And you're just like, he's better at this than I've ever been at anything in my life. He's better at this than you will ever be at anything. I just love that moment, that feeling of pride. And you're not going to talk about, this is not a game. Chess is not a game. It's a fucking gift. I just love that moment. And not just pride though, but I mean like the reckoning of, and forgive me, I'm 
speaking out of turn, I don't have any kids, but I can only imagine the feeling of being a grown man and recognizing in your child this greatness. It's akin to like Salieri and Mozart in a way. When Amadeus, I can appreciate and admire and love this thing that you are so very good at. And yet my own ego is kicking me in the gut over it. I can only imagine the guilt that would engender in a father for having that feeling about it your own child, right. which then when you think about it, it makes sense then that he would be so unaware to have this moment with his child in the rain, this kind of tell me what's going on. He's completely unaware of what he's putting his child through because he's so wrapped up in it. The threads between all of this is just remarkable. So yeah, it, you're, you're absolutely right. It had, chess is the venue, but it is a story that is as old as storytelling, this thing between fathers and sons that plays out in so much of our entertainment. It's just, it's fantastic. I just love it. I love that line. Thank you for bringing that up, Lisa. To your point, Brian, I remember the line where, and and Joe, you just referenced this as well, the way that you corrected the teacher, she talks about this chess thing, you know, with thing in inverted commas. It's not a chess thing, it's chess. (laughs) It's it's not a thing. This is not, it's not like his thing of the week. He's not obsessed with this for the week, like Power Rangers or something. This is serious. Brian just reminded me of that sort of dynamic in the film where it starts off where he goes to your work and you're commentating at the baseball and so on. And he's entering, he's a child, he's entering the world of men. And there's all these men there and they're accommodating and it's all great. But then the rest of the movie is inverting and subverting who is the adult and who is not. And there are some incredible scenes in the film. Dan Hedaya, the camera cuts to him and he's delivering this. He's not wagging his finger, but he's doing everything but. And he's cajoling and he's threatening and he's doing all this stuff. And you're thinking he's talking to children but he's not. He's talking to the parents of the children. They're corralled downstairs almost in a, a cell because they can't be trusted to act like adults. So you've got the kids upstairs who are playing chess and acting like adults, and you've got the, the parents of the kids down below sure. who, who need to be like sheep. They need to be corralled and taught and told how to behave. So there's this inversion of children and kids. It's fantastic. This must be the third movie you did with Bill Macy. Um, and he plays one of the other fathers who's so wound up in this. That must have been very fun for you to do after all of, we're going to talk about your other films as well, but him, he's, this, he's at his best when he's playing like the hapless asshole. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, Bill and I, we go, yeah, we go pretty far back and we've had that uh, fortunate kind of ability to be able to work together on very many things together. Joe, I wanted to ask you about that because he pops up in, I know you from your uh, roles where you're well-known, but when I was trawling through IMDb, I just keep seeing Bill reoccurring as a, as a motif in your career. How did you guys come together and uh, where did you guys first meet? it's really the David Mamet connection there. Though we come from it from different directions. I got involved with David Mamet when he from originally from Chicago, but then went off taught in a small college in Vermont and then came back to Chicago to try to basically peddle his plays that he had written. Bill had been one of his students. Oh, in I knew that. So he, they had a student-teacher relationship. With Mamet and I, it was more like I was with a different theater company in Chicago called the Organic Theater Company. Dennis Franz, Meshach Taylor, John Hurd, another different group of people. And and David was just basically seeing a lot of theater at the time in Chicago, different theater companies. They came and saw a play we were doing and saw me in a play there. And we ran into each other. And he basically came up to me and said, hey, I'm a playwright. I would love someday you and I, maybe would you do one of my plays? And I'm like, yeah, sure, whoever you are. Uh, you know, 
maybe that'll maybe that'll work out. <laughs> Needless to say, it did. So once I made that connection with Mamet, and he had already had that connection with Bill Macy, because then he David started a theater company himself in Chicago with Macy. St. Nicholas. Nicholas Theater Company. Yeah. And so that was Bill Macy and it was Stephen Schachter and a few other people. And uh, so that's how that happened. So it was really through David that Bill and I got to know each other. And then we did a lot of things for David together. I mean, think movies like House of Games, Things Change, Homicide. You can go down the whole list. Everything right. I've almost done with Mamet, Macy right. was also in. Sorry, can I just ask, on that topic of theater in Chicago, when I was looking and researching getting ready for this, I couldn't see any connection between yourself and Gary Sinise. But right. both famous Chicago theater guys. Yeah. Did you, did you connect or was it like the Jets and the Sharks and they were the other <laughs> No, no, it was uh, Chicago in the 70s was very, we were all very tight with each other. Mainly because I think because we knew we were in Chicago, which means we were there because we loved what we were doing, not because there was a means to the end. In other words, if you were an actor in New York, your means were to get on Broadway, off Broadway, to succeed in the business. Everybody else was kind of competition for that, for whatever reason. In, in Los Angeles, it was film and television pursuing that. Chicago, at the time, there was no end game. You were doing theater because that's what you wanted to do. And so you knew you had your company and there were other companies. So we were all pretty supportive of each other. We knew who, who we were each other were and we would see each other's things but there wasn't a lot of crossover only because a lot of us were in specific companies and Gary was with Steppenwolf I was with Organic so there wasn't really any call for us to work collectively on anything it wasn't that until later we got to actually work together and but we always knew each other we were always supportive of each other even when I was doing uh, Glenn Gary Glenn Ross on Broadway I remember Steppenwolf came and did they were doing Orphans I think off Broadway and I remember they invited me to the opening night to be able to see Gary and all those and I worked with Malkovich I worked a couple times with Joan Allen and Laurie Metcalf I knew them all very well so we didn't, we didn't necessarily always have to be working together for us to be close and be in the same community so this seems like a good organic time to pivot I just want to remind our listeners, please go and you can watch Searching for Bobby Fischer on Amazon. And Amazon is great because when you're watching it, there's a feature called X-Ray. And if you look at it, it'll tell you all the behind the scenes things. It's like they have footnotes on what's going on in the movie. Please check that out because you will fall in love as I did with the Joe in that role. Casting was created and produced by Lisa Zambetti. Sound editing by Dean Laffin from Real World Productions. Logo art by April Laffin. Theme music provided by Amphibious Zoo Music. And Big Fat Opinions provided by Brian Allen Hill.